word, but submit ourselves to your word. And be doers of the word, those who live in light of the word, who don't simply forget it, but take it to heart and allow our, um, allow our lives to be shaped by that word. Give us new eyes through that word this morning, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before our first child was born, we were shopping for items to complete a nursery. Like many of you who are parents, you've done that. Obviously, for us, finding a good crib was at the top of our list. Again, nothing out of the ordinary. Pretty, pretty, pretty common. But as you may know, when you're looking at cribs, when you're going to the store and you're looking at cribs, many of these stores will present for you themes for your nursery, right? They'll give you a nursery theme and they'll have kind of all the matching decor that you might want to purchase to complete that nursery. So those themes can be generic, like ladybugs, right? For example, red lamp with black dots on it or something like that. Part of that whole ladybug theme. Or these themes can be very specific in terms of licensed characters. Disney's Winnie the Pooh theme, right? All the items that have Winnie the Pooh and some of his friends on there. Well, one of the themes that we saw in multiple stores was Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. I bet you can picture it now as you think about that as a nursery theme. There's a mobile over the crib hanging out with maybe like boats and rainbows. There's maybe a pillowy crib guard around the inside of the crib with different animals walking two by two. Maybe there's a decorative blanket that you can at the beginning put on the wall, you know, until the child's older. A a blanket that shows white bearded Noah. He's kind of like a little Santa Claus without the hats. He's just a little bald guy with a beard. Or maybe Noah and Mrs. Noah standing there midship on that wooden boat surrounded by cute cartoonish animals. Of course, you got to have the giraffes coming out like a couple windows, right, with their long necks stretching up above the highest point of the ark. You can picture it, right? The whole floating zoo. Now, given the frequency with which we saw this theme in the stores, it was clearly a, a popular option. It sold merchandise. But it bothered me, not because it wasn't cute, But it bothered me because it was barely biblical. It was barely biblical. Yes, the theme designers had gotten some of the basics right. Noah, his ark, the animals, rainbow, a rainbow. But the mood was completely wrong. The mood was completely wrong. Someone who was not familiar with the biblical account would think... Based, just based on this nursery decor that Noah was simply the owner of a floating zoo that moved from port to port, mainly on rainy days. They would think that was the story, right? He's just floating around with these animals 
Every once in a while, the, 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 sun, the clouds break and the sun shines through. There's a rainbow. The imagery as presented communicated ideas like harmony between man and nature. Uh, communicated things like this is a celebration of life. But the story of Noah we find in the book of Genesis is not a celebration of life. This story is a story of condemnation and death. Condemnation and death. No, probably not ideas suitable for your new baby's nursery, right? You might want to avoid those. But interestingly, these are critical ideas when it comes to new life. Critical ideas when it comes to new life according to what God's word reveals. So look with me at this biblical account concerning Noah. We're leaving the nursery. We're getting into scripture itself. Look at what it tells us about Noah. We find that story, as you read last week in our Bible reading plan, you read in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, the story of Noah. This morning, we'll focus on a passage from chapter 7, specifically verses 17 through 23. This is what we read about the floodwaters that God sent, Genesis seven seventeen. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. That's simply restating verse 12. Look back up at verse 12. You see it? That first line is just restating verse 12. It says that it was rain, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. So this flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind... Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Now, someone who's unfamiliar with this story might might remark, well, <laughs> I've heard about really bad earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, even huge tsunamis. But this sounds like the worst natural disaster ever. The problem, of course, with that statement is not their assessment of the severity of the disaster, but designating the flood as a natural disaster. It was not a natural disaster. It was a decidedly supernatural disaster. Look back at 617. Flip back or scan over to the, the opposite page. Chapter 6, verse 17. 
This is what we read about this supernatural disaster. For behold, God says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, please remember this. Please remember that the one who is speaking here is the same God who only five chapters earlier, only five chapters earlier, created everything that has the breath of life. Genesis 1, verse 30. So that chapter tells us he created everything that has the breath of life. Here we read about destroying all flesh in which it is the breath of life under heaven. Why is he now going to destroy all life with this cataclysm, cataclysmic flood? Well, we find the answer several verses earlier in chapter 6. So if you're still in chapter 6, look up to verse 5. It says this, the Lord Yahweh, that's the personal name of God, all capital L-O-R-D. Personal name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. It means the self-existing one, Yahweh. So Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Right? The, The wickedness of mankind, of human beings, was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Drop down to verse 11. We have an expansion on this. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Notice how 6.12, the next verse, repeats the word corrupt. Actually, twice. Two times more, right? Corrupt, corrupted. And then verse 13 repeats the specific charge. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. He'll use the earth to destroy his creation. All living things. So, though it isn't often talked about, notice this. It's not often talked about. But notice that violence is the only specific charge provided here to help us understand broader terms we find in this passage like wickedness and evil, big generic words. The only specific charge is violence. How important for us in a culture like this one that often glorifies violence that the reason, only reason specifically given in in this account of this devastating flood is violence. That should get our attention. But it shouldn't be surprising to the reader of Genesis, this indictment, right? Because, take a look, we think, think about what you've read this past week. This flood account is bracketed by violence. It's bookended by violence. Back in chapter 4, chapter 5, kind of a genealogy, skip over that. Back to chapter 4, we have what we believe to be the first murder. Cain killing Abel, and then another descendant, Lamech, boasting about killing. And what do we have on the back end of the flood in chapter 9? Well, in chapter 9, we have God's prescription of capital punishment for murderers. Those made, those who would take the life of one made in the image of God, forfeit their own life. 
Why is God saying that right away when these people get off the boat? Noah and his family, he's going right after this. Because there's this emphasis on murder, on violence. So should we imagine, and this is key, listen. Should we imagine that the world at this time was simply defined by pure anarchy? Sounds like it almost. Wow. Every thought of his heart is only evil continually. Intention, evil continually. Violence, murder, you know, murder, murder, murder. Is this some kind of a murderous feeding frenzy that Noah's trying to escape? Well, that's not how Jesus described that world. Notice this. Take a look on the screen here. This is from Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. You're reading from Friday. Jesus said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's Jesus talking about himself. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and being given in marriage. All up until the day when Noah entered the ark. Noah and his crew, his posse are climbing aboard that ark, right? And all the animals are going on. Everyone else, business as usual, living life, community, celebration, marriages, weddings, all of that was happening. Verse 39 there in the screen, you'll see it. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Guess what? So will be the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be just the same when Jesus Christ returns. It will be the same. So that world, think about it, that world was not a caricature of evil. It was a society of community and celebration, even of marriage. But strangely, it was also a society marked by violence. It was a society marked by a disturbing disrespect for human life. Sound familiar? And whatever you may have thought looking in from the outside, right? Looking in from the outside, whatever you may have thought about your assessment of that society, it was so corrupt that God, according to his judgment, God said it, it deserved to be totally destroyed. Now with that in mind, think with me. Think with me for a few minutes about what we learn from this passage about God's judgment against this wickedness, against this violence, against this corruption with which the earth was corrupted. So from chapter 17, look at 17 through 20 once more. We learn from those verses, 17 through 20 of chapter 7, we learn that, take a look here, number one, God's judgment is overwhelmingly inescapable. God's judgment is overwhelmingly inescapable. When this flood came, it didn't matter if you climbed to the top of the tallest tree. When this flood came, it didn't matter if you hiked to the top of the highest mountain. It didn't matter. The writer makes this clear in his description in verses 19 and 20. Do you see it there? How high the water rose? Unlike images of flooding that we would often see on our screens today, back in Noah's time, there was no one waiting on their roof for rescue. Not a single person. 
there was not any higher ground to which you could evacuate. When God brings this kind of judgment against human evil, it is inescapable. Let that sober you, friend. Let that sober you in light of coming judgment. But I also want you to notice that as we read verses 21 through 23, moving forward, that number two, take a look, God's judgment is radically purifying. God's judgment is radically purifying. Reread with me verses 21 through 23a, the first part of 23. It says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. The emphasis there is unmistakable, isn't it? He's like saying the same thing over from different ways of kind of putting it. But to make, he's just trying to make that point abundantly clear so no one is confused at all. Why is this emphasis, why is he emphasizing this? Why in the world though, if we, if he's emphasizing this, we want to ask, why is this the case? Why in the world would God kill everything because of mankind's wickedness? Bugs and birds, cattle and carnivores are never talked about in scripture as moral agents. Deserving judgment and punishment? So why are they being punished for human evil? Notice that not everything dies, right? The text is clear about that. Not everything dies. So there's some, there is some, there is some qualification here. Uh, none of the fish die. None of the sea, sea creatures die. Right? It's the, it's the things on the ground even the things in the air, but they have to come down to the ground every once in a while. So so why this? Why this picture here? Well, I think the judgment we see here is built on the premise that human beings, back in chapter 1, take a look, human beings were given dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, when He created our world, when He created our world, He created a connection between people who were made in His image and every other living thing. There was a connection there. And I think that means the punishment here is not teaching us about the, about the reality of some kind of animal guilt. No, 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 no. It's teaching us about the reality. It's teaching us about the extent of human corruption. The extent of human corruption. This is telling us something about you and me. The animals being killed here. All these animals. As 6, 1, sorry, as chapter 6 verse 11 stated, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. Brothers and sisters, friends, in God's pure white creation, 
the black ink or maybe the red ink of our sin sprays and splatters and drips and pools on and over everything. All life is tainted because of us. This is why the Apostle Paul talked about creation. A creation subjected to futility in Romans chapter 8. A creation in bondage to corruption. That is how poisonous, how cancerous, how defiling your sin is. My sin. Now, I don't think the takeaway is you leave here saying, oh, my sin. Oh, my sin. The poor owls. The poor earthworms. The poor guppies and koi fish. The poor whatever. Because of my sin, they're tainted. No, 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 no. <laughs> Remember the fish and the creatures of the, of the, of the water in Noah's time, they survived. They lived. They weren't destroyed. It was these animals that that had this connection with man. Part of our world. Part of our everyday. The things that this. And so the picture there is is of us walking through our world, spraying this ink all over everything, other people and situations and events and institutions and ambitions and dreams all tainted by our human sin. We make impure all that's around us. Our sin defiles. Don't worry about the animals. Worry about the defiling nature of your sin. The tainting, corruptive effect of your sin. I think that's the picture that we have here. So when God brings this kind of judgment against human evil, it must be radically comprehensive. It must be radically exhaustive so as to be radically purifying, cleansing, but wonderfully, marvelously, amazingly, joyously. Our passage also reveals that, take a look, number three, God's mercy is wonderfully preserving. God's mercy is wonderfully preserving. I could be accused of being a total downer this morning talking about judgment, people dying, floodwaters, destruction. No, no, no. In the midst of this literal flood of divine judgment, we read about a single solitary Boat being tossed on the surface of these destructive waters. After the dark and depressing heaviness of verses 21 through 23a, we are reminded at the very end of verse 23, we are reminded of God's mercy. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. You see the lopsidedness of those nursery de- depictions that merchandising depiction of, of, uh, of only Noah was left. It's kind of a, a footnote here of like, the point is destruction, the point is condemnation, the point is judgment. And yet, down here, God has preserved Noah. It's not all Noah happy, 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 you know, like going through, if you've ever been on a Splash Mountain in, Dis- in Disneyland, there's a big like, 
riverboat in there with all these animals singing and dancing, right? In one of those, one of those alcoves. It's not that. With a little bit of judgment, maybe, in Noah's story. No, no, no. It's not that. But it is that too. It is this. As the context describes, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, along with countless breeding pairs of animals, were protected and they were preserved by God in this ark that Noah built. Why did he build it? He built it according to divine instructions. God intervened in his life. God warned him. God gave him a way out. This is such an important reminder for us, isn't it? The Bible is a book about judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. Though some of God's people can rightly be labeled as judgmental. And some preaching over the centuries has been dominated by the idea of God's wrath. God's word reveals both judgment and mercy. You can't separate those two in God's word. Judgment and mercy. There is no passage in Scripture so dark with judgment that it can overcome the light of God's grace revealed regularly and powerfully in those same pages. Do you believe that? Judgment and mercy. Why is this so important for us? Because though God promised to never judge humanity again by by means of a flood... As Jesus himself indicated in the passage that we looked at from Matthew 24, his return to our world, he will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when he's coming. Could be this afternoon, could be a thousand years from now. You don't know. But his return to our world will also be accompanied by humanity-wide judgment, another humanity-wide judgment. And according to many passages in the New Testament, that coming judgment, a judgment of fire, not water, will also be overwhelmingly inescapable and it will be radically purifying. Just like we saw this morning from the account of the flood. That is still to come. Do you believe that? You can read in the past about this in the ancient mists of history, right? Primeval history, this flood that took place and go, wow, that's crazy, intense. But it's back there in the past. But do you believe that something like this could come again? God's word assures us that it will. Judgment is coming again. But as in the days of Noah, God's mercy will also be wonderfully preserving Even then, in the midst of that future judgment, God's mercy preserves. The Apostle Peter told his readers about how, take a look, how God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. There's the key idea, safely through water. Look what Peter does. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
That's First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. How can you and I be brought safely through the water in terms of God's coming judgment? How will we brought safely through those waters of judgment? Through baptism. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Baptism? Baptism saves us? Water baptism saves us? No, not the water itself. That's what Peter's clarifying. That only removes dirt from the body, right? That water is not going to do, going to do that. Peter is thinking here and talking here, given the fact that we're talking about waters and judgment, he naturally goes and thinks about baptism as an expression of saving faith. Baptism as an expression of saving faith. Those two were so closely aligned in the, in the old, in the, in the ancient church, the first church, that Peter could say on the day of Pentecost, not repent and believe, he said repent and be baptized. Which was really the same as repent and believe. But we express our faith, that saving faith, in the waters of baptism. And how are we preserved through saving faith? Peter says here, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Jesus was drowned in the floodwaters of God's judgment for you. Jesus was drowned in the floodwaters of God's judgment for you. You ever seen in a movie when someone drowns? How agonizing it is, even depicted there. How frightening it is when you think about if that was me. He was drowned for you. Something awful, far more awful than the flood of Noah. But ultimately, he passed through those waters to a new life like Noah. He passed through those waters, the author of life. Therefore, He, Jesus, and He alone will be our ark. He is our ark. Only He can be our ark when this world once again experiences God's judgment against sin. Do you know Him as such this morning? My encouragement to you. Do you know Him as your ark? Now, listen. There are many other things we could talk about concerning Noah, talking about the ark, talking about this devastating flood. In fact, there are too many other things. We simply do not have time this morning to explore all of those scriptures that t- talk about Noah or, or thematic connections to this story. But here's what we need to do. Each one of us needs to personally wrestle with this story. To that end, let me ask you this. When you heard this story, when you read this story this past week, when you heard it this morning as you listened, where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see yourself? With whom do you identify? As, as, as I read that story to you. Are you Noah? Or maybe not Noah? Consider a quote I saw online this past week from writer Trevin Wax. He said this, Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. Brothers and sisters, 
Friends, Scripture teaches us this. Take a look. Scripture teaches us that to be able to identify with Noah inside the ark, we must first identify with everyone outside the ark. In that world ripe for judgment. To be able to identify with Noah inside the ark, we must first identify with everyone outside the ark. In that world ripe for judgment, we're quick to want to identify with Noah. Yeah, Noah, baby, put me inside that ark, right? I'll take one of those cabins that's like down, it doesn't even have a porthole. Just give me one of, yeah, like right, you know, like the guys who are, who are bringing food or the, or the guys with their wrenches going to fix the boilers. I'll be on that hallway, <laughs> you know. Even if there's clanging, right next to the ice machine, right next to the elevator, no problem, I want to be on there. Identify with Noah inside the ark. But the Bible confirms this. Take a look, Ephesians 2, 3. It confirms that we are by nature, you're born into it, children of wrath. That means you're born for judgment. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we are. We are children of wrath. Our nature makes us so. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you truly believe that if you lived in Noah's time, the fate you deserve, you personally deserve, is the very fate Noah's neighbors met to be washed away and drowned in the floodwaters of God's perfect justice? Do you truly believe that about yourself? Some of you deep down don't really believe that. You simply don't believe that. You may agree you're a sinner. You can shake your head at that. But not to the same extent as these people were. Come on. Yeah, sure, you may deserve some kind of penalty. But not this kind of fate. You're not that bad. But you see, God's word exposes that thinking. It wants to correct your assessment of yourself. The problem with that assessment is that your view of God and your view of sin are too low because your view of human beings, including yourself, is too high. That's the problem. That's why you don't see yourself here. That's why deep down, if you're honest, this picture of floodwaters wiping away men, women, and children, everyone, gone. That's why you don't like it. You don't want to agree with it. You don't want to believe it. Your view of God and sin are too low because your view of human beings, including yourself, is too high. Now, others of you agree that you deserve the fate of those outside the ark. You would be quick to say that, but you believe that for the wrong reasons. You accept that idea not because of God's judgments, but because of the judgments of other people directed at you. For a variety of reasons, many of us have come to believe lies about ourselves. Lies that lead us to falsely condemn ourselves. And then we use the Bible to support those views. But in such cases, how we view ourselves is actually too low. It's too low. Why? Because our view of others is too high. Don't put yourself lower than the Bible places you. 
Right? The Bible says you're made in the image of God. The Bible says that God so loved the world, he gave his son, Jesus, for you. He sent him into the world. If you put yourself down here too low because of the judgments of other people, and you say, I have, I'm worthless, I really have no value, you're contradicting what God himself has said about who you are. And you're beholden to the judgments of other people and you tremble light of the judgments of other people, not the judgments of God. I don't say that carelessly or callously because many of those lies are there for through very painful means. Lots of suffering. But my friend, you have to clarify. It is so important that you clarify God's judgment against you and how it differs from people's judgment against you. Because if you cannot do that, you will not understand repentance in truth. Right? You will not understand what God wants to do in your life. You won't be looking to Him not only for what He says is wrong, but for what is right and what only He can offer for change in your life if we are beholden to the judgments of others. But there's a third category here. Because of God's grace, through His Spirit, many of you have accepted the ugly truth about your sin. You have about all your sin. Not only has God revealed to you through His Word what is and is not sin, But you've acknowledged the depths of your sin. You've acknowledged just how sinful you are in light of who God is. How sinful sin is in light of God, who God is. And you've acknowledged how even deeds you once considered good were really driven by sinful motives. Bible calls those filthy rags. Your righteous deeds, God says in Isaiah to Israel, they're like filthy rags. You think they merit you something in my eyes, but they're done for all the wrong reasons. You do religious things for the wrong reasons and expect that I'm pleased or will reward you somehow. You see, the eyes, our eyes are open to see sin for what it truly is. Listen, I believe this has to be one of the reasons Noah is called righteous in chapters 6 and 7. You remember reading that? Noah is declared righteous by God. One of the reasons I believe that he's called righteous is, is, well, hold on a minute. Was Noah saved? We might want to ask this. Was Noah saved because he was morally perfect or pure? No, no. We know that's not the case. Absolutely not. The only perfect man is Jesus Christ. So why was Noah saved? Well, listen, the righteous person of Scripture is not only righteous because of his or her response to the evil out there. The righteous person of Scripture is also called righteous because of his or her response to the evil inside their own hearts. There is a righteous response to the evil inside your own hearts. You see, the righteous man or woman is a repentant man or woman. That was something sorely lacking in Noah's world. There was no repentance. There was only evil. You may not have been able to see it from the outside all the time. It may have looked somewhat civil. It may have looked, you know, certain way to us. 
but underneath it was dark and it was ugly. Noah alone stood out, not because he was perfect, because he was a man who repented of his sin. He looked to God. God is his only hope. Thus, that world, it was rightly destroyed by a just and holy God. Brothers and sisters, friends, what am I asking you this morning? What is God saying to you? I would encourage you to do this. Please allow the devastating and disturbing heaviness of your sin. Please allow the devastating and disturbing heaviness of God's condemnation and wrath. Let these things wash over you this morning to borrow imagery from our story. Let them wash over you this morning. Only when you do that can you identify with a man like Noah, a man of faith, he believed God's message about judgment. And that's what God's calling you to do today. Believe this message about judgment. He believed it. And unlike his neighbors, in faith, he sought God's preservation. Oh God, preserve me. Save me. And God said, I'll show you how. Trust me. Do you recognize that you are a sinner this morning? If you do, then then what do you deserve? That's what his word asks you this morning. What do you deserve if you're a sinner? And does your assessment of what you deserve line up with what God's word says you deserve? And if you believe what God has said, are you seeking his safety this morning? Are you seeking his safety? He's made it possible for you. I pray that you are. Because here's good news. A new life and a new world awaits you through the ark that is Jesus Christ. Amen? A new life, a new world awaits us when the, the floodwaters of judgment subside. God has prepared something amazing and beautiful for those who love Him, for those who obey, who hear His Word, who respond to His Word about the ark that is Jesus. Or maybe you, you already know that deliverance will be yours. Because of God's grace. You sit here knowing that this morning. If so, brother, sister, regularly remind yourself that a story like this is an important reminder of what you truly deserve. It's very easy to, to lose sight of this, isn't it? It's very easy to get ourselves going on the right path and enjoy all the blessings from God and to not go back and stop and think, but for the grace of God go there, but for the grace of God go I. That's me. That's what I deserve. Right? To stay grounded in this. How ugly when those who are saved by grace alone find themselves on God's path and become judgmental and stone throwers. Looking at the world around and more consumed about pointing a finger at everyone else, whether they know that person or it's on the news or whatever. Pointing fingers. And yet never going back and examining their own heart and looking down the pit, the depth, and the darkness of the pit from which you were pulled by the grace of God. May we never be those people. 
Go back and look. Let stories like this remind you of what you truly deserve. Let the ugliness in this story showcase for you the incomparable beauty of God's grace. It stands in stark contrast, doesn't it? Let it inspire humility in you, sobriety in you, thankfulness in your heart. Let it deepen our hatred of sin and fan into flame our love for this God who preserves sinners in the face of His just judgments. Are you Noah? Maybe not Noah? I pray by God's grace you can identify as both this morning.